You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. This is an introduction to this faith and culture class. Um, We're coordinating it across all the different ministry areas at the Advent um, as a reminder that mission and outreach is not just one department of the Advent, it's the vision of the entire church. And so um, we've got people from, um, you know, from Beeson, we've got some lay members, people that have gone on trips to Bolivia and Rwanda, um, people within the church that minister to young adults and college students. And so we're trying to just remind the entire body of the Advent that um, thinking about faith and culture is not something that's just designated to a certain group of people that really care about it. But how does this have tentacles that go far beyond that? So um, the reason we kind of created this class at the beginning is, um, so I, over the past two or three months, have spent time in five different countries um, and seeing... Um, how they have, how their expressions of faith are really powerful to me as a North American. And so trying to wade through what's my personality, what's part of my culture, what's part of the culture that I'm um, visiting, and then where is God in all of this? And so I took those questions to Mark Ginolette and Will Womack, and so um, they're going to expound upon it in ways that are really going to help me process. So um, hopefully it will be helpful to all of us. So before I hand it over to Mark, let's pray. Um, Oh, Father of all nations, we thank you um, that you have created us in your image. And from this little corner of the world in Birmingham, Alabama, across the seas to Rwanda and to so many other places in the world, um, your church is thriving because you are present, Lord. And so um, as we wade through the topic of faith and culture and what it is and how we can seek you in the midst of so many differences, Lord, um, I ask that you be with our teachers today, with Mark and with Will, that they will open your word and they will show us more of who you are. And we ask all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, great. Thank you, Bethany. Okay, I, I, uh, well, let me get this on real fast. There. I, I'm really Will Womack's warm-up act. Um, so he's he's getting ready to come and sing for you. No, I'm joking. Um, I, so I, I'm going to give, a, and, and the preacher was a little long-winded today, so I realize we've cut into time. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna, um, so I'm going to take for my own time so that I'll make sure that Will gets his full due. Um, and uh, three things kind of set out a biblical theological frame for the question about Christ, culture, and really it's how sort of I think missiology fits into the whole dynamic of God's being. So I'm going to give you a couple of bullet points, things that I've been thinking about. Um, Will this week uh, sort of put me back onto Leslie Newbegin, and I think he's going to refer to Newbegin in his own in his own talk. Um, you know, I went through a sort of a phase of thinking through the implication of God's eternal identity. Uh, so two big things here: God's identity as a sending God. I mean, this is central. Um, I've been sort of wrestling with, back again with Thomas Aquinas. This is hard for me because of my kind of reformed roots, but I'm going back to Aquinas. Um, and Aquinas speaks very much about the fact that God's eternal identity, what he would call the eternal processions, the Father begets the Son, who together beget the, uh, inspirate the Spirit, that that eternal um, identity of God and his triune being is integrally related to the missions of God in time. 
In other words, what we see God the Father and the Son and the Spirit doing in time is fitting. It's a natural extension of who God is in His own eternal identity. Um, and this is really important because that then shows that God, um, that central to God's being is that God in the overflow of His goodness sins um, sends His Son, who then sends the Spirit into the world. And another way of putting this is, our, our God is a missionary God. I mean, I think that's the way of thinking about God's trying identity. He is a missionary God. It's, it's constitutive of God's being that He is a sending agent. So from that standpoint, I, I kind of think of the two um, major uh, Old Testament and New Testament uh, texts that might hold this together on some level. And th- this is where I've kind of been processing it in my own mind. The Abrahamic Covenant, Genesis 12, the Great Commission in Matthew. Right, so here you have these two. And what's, what's integral to both the Abrahamic Covenant and the Great Commission? Both of them have the nations within the purview. And then this, uh, this, I'll say this, kind of flesh it out, and then I'm going to turn it over to Will. The nations are in the purview of the Abrahamic Covenant, Genesis chapter 12. Right, This is right after the, the, the fall of the Tower of Babel, the dispersion of the languages. This is God's means of restoring the broken creation to himself. How does he do it? By calling out Abraham. I will bless your name. I will make your name great. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And through your family shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And that becomes a really central theme to um, the ways in which the Abrahamic covenant shapes a missional understanding of the Old Testament itself and God's relationship uh, to Israel. Before we even get out of the book of Genesis, I've always thought about this. Why such a long narrative with Joseph? Why is that there? Um, Joseph isn't picked up in the New Testament at all. Have you ever noticed that? Never. I mean, no Joseph in the New Testament. You think this would be ripe for kind of Christian typological readings? No Joseph. So what's Joseph doing in Genesis? I think what you see in Genesis is Joseph as a kind of down payment a kind of adumbration of the Abrahamic covenant. Before we even get out of Genesis, here we have someone who's from the offspring of Abraham on a throne in a foreign land who's the unique instrument that redeems and saves that known world at the time. Um, Joseph is the kind of outworking of the Abrahamic covenant. It's to the nations. And then you have within the Great Commission, God sending forth uh, us to make disciples um, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the, and the Holy, Holy Spirit. Um, who are we going to? Going into all nations. This is the thing that reading Newbegin this week that I found um, just a kind of good refresher. Number one, um, missiology, um, missionary existence. I, I grew up in a world where that was understood primarily as a map in the lobby of the church with little red uh, pins in it to tell me where all of our missionaries were. Um, I think what Newbegin, and who's really leaning very much on the theology of Karl Barth, who's reading the Bible very closely, I think is making a very strong point to say, missiology is not a subset of ecclesiology or a doctrine of the church. Ecclesiology and missiology are flip sides of the same coin. And to be the church is to be gathered, to be then scattered out throughout the world. The second thing that I sort of picked up from Newbegin that I thought was helpful is the kind of view within the Bible that nations and national identities are maintained as, number one, the objects of God's missionary movement, and number two, they maintain that identity in eternity. Now, this is this is of interest, right? Um, so, so what Newbegin was saying, if I was reading him carefully, and Will will help us on this, it's not just individuals uh, who are being saved. It's whole people groups and cultures who are being redeemed. Think Jonah. 
the book of Jonah. Right? I love this. Right? Who, 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 are, who are the objects of Jonah's missionary movement? Now, the whole city of Nineveh. And just to make the point even stronger, um, from the king of Nineveh all the way down to the kitty cats are involved in, in national repentance. Um, it's, it's, it's a whole people. And then when you go to the book of Revelation, again, you kind of see these things working out throughout the scriptures. It's nations in Revelation 4 and 5, identifiable people groups that are coming um, in droves uh, to worship at, at, the, at the foot of um, at the throne of our Lord. The point being, nationhood, cultures, cultural identities, um, those are something that continue to be identified even within eternity. That's, that's very interesting. God wants to redeem whole people groups and whole cultures. This is the way uh, Newbegin uh, put it. Um, whole nation groups and whole cultures, people defined by and seen through a total uh, view of things, a way of things that shapes a group and their way of living. What is it that shapes and identifies a group according to their particular way of being and living? Um, and I think we're going to hear Will talk about this in a few moments. Cultures are also the products of sin. They're fallen. They need to be redeemed. But I think that's part of the sort of missionary identity of God's work and movement into cultures. God's redeeming whole people groups uh, for himself. Uh, last thing, and I'm going to turn it over to, to, um, to uh, Will. Fascinating to think about Isaiah chapter 2 and Micah chapter 4 both giving us a view of the future of God's restoration of all things in himself. And what's this picture of the future? It's all nations. It's it's people, groups, and cultures and civilizations who are streaming to Mount Zion to be taught Torah, to be to be instructed from God, um, which then ushers in a, an era of universal peace. But again, those nations are still identifiable in that and that particular missionary movement. So I, that, that's how I kind of began to, I mean, I grew up in a world where evangelization focused primarily on individuals. I don't think that's, that, that's still very, very important. Um, but I do think there's this kind of a grander view of within scripture of whole civilizations and cultures who are, who are being brought um, into the redeeming focus of the gospel and God's own missionary activity. All right, that's a, you're, you're up now. <laughs> Will didn't think I'd do this short. That was, great. that was truly impressive, but um, I think the sermon was a good warm-up, too. So, um, that's fantastic. Um, I just want to start with some big ideas, really, and think about what, what culture means and what, what that language means when we talk about it. So if you could give me um, some feedback, I'd appreciate that. I like to play... I teach world history a lot. I like to play word association in my classes. So when I say the word culture, what does that mean? What springs to mind? What picture pops into your head? Way of a people. A way of a people, okay. Customs. Customs. The arts. Language. Language, it's a big one. Barriers. Barriers, okay. Anything else? I think of cultures as being essentially human inventions. Yep. Uh, I mean, the, the word almost means that. Sure. Identity. Identity. Okay. It's a story they tell about themselves, like their history and their future. Good. Wildly different food and dress. Wildly different food and dress. All right. Good, yeah. Hmm? Thinking. Thinking. Okay. Thinking. Embedded in all these things. Language. Identity, yeah. 
So, all right, I think we're, we're kind of on the same page with this. I want to talk about, it's funny that you bring up dress. Uh, I'll talk really briefly about that. Um, I was looking back, you know, to see where, where does culture emerge in, in the Bible, right, if we're sort of looking at it historically. And um, uh, the first thing I can see that's a cultural product, right, sort of a man-made product, is, is clothing, right? It's fig leaves to cover the shame of, A, not being God and realizing that we're not God and being ashamed that we are disobedient, right, and sinful, right? So there's something about that sinful nature of man that is preserved in every human culture, right? Everything we do that's culturally. So um, so I thought that was really important. And, and today I wore this tie um, kind of as a fig leaf of my own. I think you talked about uh, confidence and ignorance. Uh, this tie belonged to my stepdad, who was a missionary in, in Southeast Asia for 40 years. And he should be standing here because he spent his entire career preaching the gospel across cultures, and uh, he's no longer with us. But So this is, this is part of that. And yesterday, uh, not to be too morbid, I was at another funeral, uh, up in Nashville, and um, I had a crisis. Uh, as uh, yeah, you, you guys know me well enough to. Die. I don't really uh, you know know anything about clothing, but um, uh, I was I had a crisis about what to wear to this funeral, right? Because he would not a crisis, but a decision to make, right? So uh, this uh, funeral was of another father, big brother, I guess, of mine in a way, um, who I encountered. I met when I was uh, working in a refugee camp on the Thai Burma border. He was a teacher in the school there. Um, I ended up uh, filling some of his classes uh, when I was there as a volunteer. Uh, he came to Tennessee uh, with a group of refugees from Burma uh, during the 2000s, 2010 period, and was a pastor of a Baptist church up there. So his funeral was yesterday, um, and I decided to wear this jacket that he had given me, right? So a jacket uh, that uh, was in design, kind of traditional Korean pattern, right? The striped, hand-woven uh, garments that we think of as traditional. I can pick that apart for you uh, if you want, what, what, what we mean by tradition. But um, uh, it was a Western cut, you know, regular kind of suit jacket, but it had that pattern on it, right? So, um, but just as a backup, I brought my, you know, I had my uh, dark suit and I had that jacket with me too, right? So, so I, was just, I was on the fence about what to wear. And so, um, so we pull up at the funeral home, as usual, we're late, you know, to the to the service, and uh, so I throw on the Karen jacket that Thra Thomas had given me, and 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 we go in, right? And so the first thing I and and I've been doing enough of these Karen services before that I knew, um, you know, you're going to find a bunch of people in Western clothes, you're going to find a bunch of people in more traditional clothes. They tend to wear those to church, not every day, right? But to church, uh, both in Burma and over here. And so I said, well, um, I'm going to wear my Karen jacket to honor Thra Thomas, right? And I'll blend in. Walked in. Uh, there were probably five people, right, who weren't wearing black. So, uh, so suddenly I stand out like a sore thumb. So, so culture is a tricky thing, right? Culture changes a lot. And I was glad I did it. It was funny because uh, later on, um, a guy who was wearing a bright blue blazer, right, with the Karen pattern sort of came up to me afterward and, and uh, was talking to me. He's a pastor who's coming in to help take over Thomas's church. And, uh, um, he, he commented on my jacket. Like the guy, at, we drove through, right, the, the, the chicken place, right, for lunch. I was like, oh, it's a nice jacket. I'm like, yeah, thanks, man. That's just great. <laughs> but he, uh, um, uh, this pastor said, uh, said, oh, I like your jacket. I said, well, you know, Thomas gave it to me, so I thought it was appropriate. He said, yeah, he gave me this one, too. <laughs> so it was really funny to see that, that even the Corinne guy was wearing the Corinne jacket 
really because Thomas had given it to him, not because of it. So culture is a funny thing. So I want to think, think about concepts today, right? Uh, like I just started. What does culture have to do with anything? Um, I think we use the word in three, three ways and probably more than that. And they're all interrelated. I don't want to separate these out into too, too much of disparate categories. But you've given me some of that already. I think everything that I have, you've already mirrored back to me. Um, one is in the sense of um, high culture, right? Cultural production. We used to use it mostly to talk about the arts, literature, uh, you know, cultured versus uncultured, right? And um, which was all, almost a proxy for civilized versus uncivilized, so, you know. And there's even, I think, a deeper level of culture versus nature, right? If you think about agriculture, right? Uh, the culture is the product of cultivated humanity, right? So using human skill to make something that's a human product. Somebody said uh, culture is human. I think that's absolutely right. So, um, so in some way, I think it is related to the fall, right? This sort of curse of having to work uh, in the field, right? To, and of uh, not of being exiled from the garden of nature where God does the planting, right? So there's something about human culture that's embedded in that fall, right? So that's that's the first thing I want to uh, think about. Culture is human. It's fallen. It's unavoidable, right? Um, Mark already said, God chose to make Himself in human form and to be born into a particular cultural and historical context, right? He doesn't reject culture. He doesn't call us to reject culture. He works in it and through it to his ultimate redemption, as the picture Mark gave you of Revelation. So um, it's imbued with sin. It's in need of redemption. And so I think, in a sense, in human culture, uh, to use that agriculture uh, reference again, the, the wheat and the tares kind of grow up together, right? Uh, some of our fruit is good uh, and produces good fruit and is godly. Some of it is maybe not so, right? Uh, so that's that's the one I think way in which we use culture, right? Sort of this human production, human achievement might be a way of thinking about it. Um, and the second way, which we've also touched on, is cultures in the plural, right? Sort of distinct categories of identity. Somebody said identity, right? Uh, so cultures which are built around a particular way of thinking, particular way of doing things. And this, I think, is a more recent meaning uh, of the word, right? I did a little unscientific Google. You guys know Google Ingram, where you can you can graph out uh, how many how many hits you get on a word in the Google database over a certain period of time. So I put in culture, and there's a nice little graph. I wish I'd brought a graph with me, but there's a nice little. You can do it at home. Don't take my word for it, right? So um, there's a, there's a nice little upward trajectory of the use of the word culture, starting in around 1800, which is about when they you know, the corpus begins for Google, really. That's when. Uh, so that's uh, that's kind of interesting, right? It sort of steadily becomes more and more popular in use. And then I typed in a bunch of synonyms for culture, whatever I could think of. Nations, peoples, uh, ways of doing, you know, all these sort of ways, mores, these sorts of things. And they were all flatter, right? So that said something to me about the way that we use this, this term. And I think, um, oddly enough, I think uh, missionaries are partly to blame for that, right? So... Right around the early 1800s, the rise of the um, Protestant missionary movement in America and worldwide, but particularly in America, we get, because I, I assume Google's corpus is skewed toward 
English language, right? Um, so uh, Britain too, all right, I'm not going to leave them out. But uh, the Second Great Awakening and all of the great denominational missionary societies, the American Board, the Baptists, are all sort of organized around this foreign mission project, right? Um, so that uh, gets people out there, right? They start encountering people who look different, they wear different clothes, they think differently, they don't have the Bible, they begin translating the Bible, which itself is a complicated and fraught process, right? <laughs> which I think is a, is a really good chance for culture to be mirrored back onto the people who are doing the translation, right? How do I think of this word? How am I translating it now into this other language, which has a different thought process, which has a different context? What does that say about my translation, right? What does that say about my cultural context in which I read the Bible, all right? So that, that starts to come out, and we start to see we talk a lot about multiculturalism, I guess, in our, in our present age, but we start to see that that whole discipline of anthropology, of, of ethnography, grew out of the missionary encounter with other cultures, right? Later on in the 20th century, um, the academics took it over, right? And so we have this idea of one culture and another, but it really was embedded in that idea growing out of the second great awakening of ingathering the nations, right? Hastening the second coming of Christ by bringing together all nations in the kingdom, and it was a multicultural vision of the kingdom. I have this great example from 1834 when um, the Karen mission in Burma, once again, these people I was with yesterday, actually the first foreign Protestant mission station was with them, right? Adoniram Judson, you know, Judson College down the road is named after his wife. Um, uh, part of this haystack meeting of students in New England who had a vision of sharing the gospel with the world, right? And they went out uh, to uh, uh, to India first, ended up in Burma, long story. We can talk about that later if you want to. But the, um, the upshot is, uh, by 1834, uh, a couple of missionaries from that mission come back to the United States. Uh, the gospel is catching on. The, these Karen people in particular in Burma are um, embracing the gospel. Uh, the church is changing their culture, right? They're starting to wear funny Western jackets with stripes on them. Uh, not quite yet, but eventually. And uh, they get to, um, they, they bring back two people from Burma with them, right? Two uh, ministers. One is a, uh, preachers really, right? One is a Karen, one is another ethnic group. And they go to, uh, at that time, what was the ancestor of Colgate University, uh, which is a little missionary factory for the Baptists at that point. And they are teaching languages, their languages, to these missionaries so they can go out and preach and translate in their language. So uh, they make a big tour right, around the USA. They come to, the closest they get to here is Augusta, Georgia. Uh, and uh, they are there. They meet with two Cherokee um, preachers who come down from North Carolina in Augusta. And there's this backroom meeting uh, that comes out in all the, the Baptist literature about that period, a backroom meeting where uh, they have this prayer meeting with pastors from who are from Wales and Scotland and two different languages of Burma and the Native Americans. And to them, this is a vision of the coming kingdom, the ingathering of the nation. So there's sort of excitement that's going on in the 19th century about that. And it's multicultural. All right, I'm getting off on a tangent, but that's the idea. With this definition of culture as parallel, uh, even atomic, right? Having a, each having its own center, uh, being separated from each other, is something that is 
culturally embedded, right, in our way of seeing the world. I have to sort of say that, right? Um, I don't know if there's any physicist in here, but I don't think we think of the universe in that atomic way anymore uh, completely, right? Uh, which I think gets us to our next way of using the word culture, right? And this is the, the probably the most scientific and the least maybe seemingly relevant, but it's kind of where I'm going. Um, bacteria, right? <laughs> we talk about culturing bacteria, right? about yogurt culture maybe, right? And so um, the culture, uh, it's, it's kind of like agriculture and it's intentional, right? There's human, usually human intervention. Maybe, you're, maybe the results are what you intend, maybe not. Maybe there's weeds right in with the tears. But I, I think that somehow our, our consciousness is starting to move in that direction in our culture, right? We're thinking about the human individual medically, not as a individual, but as a, a Petri dish, right? <laughs> a, uh, a whole colony of bacteria, right? And that's starting to revolutionize our, our medical science, a gut level kind of uh, culture. And so I think uh, it's useful to think about the way that we use the word culture that way too, is a gut level uh, reaction, right? Some of that is good and makes us healthy. Some of that makes us ill, right? And some of that makes us stronger too, right? <laughs> so there's something about a culture which is, uh, you know, it's inescapable, it's gut level, uh, and it is, uh, it's both bigger and smaller in a way than, than us, right? Uh, so that's, um, that's something. So there's, there's a, there's a, um, uh, there's a duality to that. Um, well, when we find, I think when we find, um, The bacterial model made me think about uh, being sort of being in the world and and not of it, right? Uh, when we look at the Bible, the Bible uses the word culture in that in our translations very much, but it uses synonyms, right? Those concepts are clearly there, nations and that all stuff. Um, uh, and there's a sense in which uh, it's hard to know our own culture from within, right? You have to get outside of it. Uh, it's like a fish in the water. It's like uh, what's this other big scientific concept? The the, the Higgs field, right? So you heard about the Higgs boson, right? This is the idea that uh, everything, the thing that gives weight to the whole universe that sort of sets the laws of gravity as we know them is this invisible sea of particles that we don't, we can't imagine the universe without, right? We can't even imagine them because we're so embedded within them, right? So there's a sense in which culture, human culture is that way, right? We're like the fish in the water, right? We don't know the culture until we are removed from it, which is what, where I'm sort of going today, right? I think... Um, as we move forward uh, into this series, uh, uh, it's my hope uh, that we can think about what's outside of our water. You know, uh, what is it about our water uh, that makes us healthy? Uh, that makes us maybe not so healthy. What is it about that this distorts our view of the gospel? What is it, what is it about it that uh, helps clarify? our view of the gospel. Right? So that cross-cultural encounter, I think, is a place where we, um, where God, uh, if I can say that, uh, draws us to challenge uh, our own assumptions, to draw us out of ourselves into some ways his presence. Not that the other culture is better or worse necessarily, um, but in the sa similarly in need of redemption. It can be a convicting uh, place like the 
the health crisis that we heard about today from Jay, right, in the, the, the message about uh, um, stewardship. Um, and so uh, I want to read you a quotation from uh, a poem, actually. This is what my stepdad would have done if you asked him to talk about culture. So I'm going to read you this poem. It's kind of an old, old style poem. It rhymes and stuff. So bear with me if this isn't your thing. But um, it's The Calf Path by Sam Walter Foss, if you're familiar. One day through the primeval wood, a calf walked home, as good calves should, but made a trail all bent askew, a crooked trail, as all calves do. Since then, 300 years have fled, and... I infer the calf is dead. But still he left behind his trail, and thereby hangs a moral tale. The trail was taken up next day by a lone dog that passed that way. And then a wise bellwether sheep pursued the trail o'er vale and steep, and drew the flock behind him too, as good bellwethers always do. And from that day were hill and dale, hill and glade, through those old woods, a path was made. And many men wound in and out and dodged and turned and bent about and uttered words of righteous wrath because t'was such a crooked path. But still they followed, do not laugh, the first migrations of that calf. And through this winding woodway stalked because he wobbled when he walked. This forest path became a lane that bent and turned and turned again. This crooked lane became a road where many a poor horse with his load toiled on beneath the burning sun and traveled some three miles in one. And thus a century and a half they trod in the footsteps of that calf. The years passed on in swiftness fleet. The road became a village street, and this before men were aware, a city's crowded thoroughfare. And soon the central street was this, of a renowned metropolis. And men two centuries and a half trod in the footsteps of that calf. Each day a hundred thousand route followed the zigzag calf about, and o'er his crooked journey went the traffic of a continent. A hundred thousand men were led by one, one calf, near three centuries dead. They followed still his crooked way and lost one hundred years a day, for thus such reverence is lent to well-established precedent. A moral lesson this might teach were I ordained and called to preach, for men are prone to go it blind among the calf paths of the mind and work away from sun to sun to do what other men have done. They follow in the beaten track and in and out and forth and back and still their devious course pursue to keep the path that others do. They keep the path of sacred grove along which all their lives they move. But how the wise old wood gods laugh who first saw the primeval calf. Uh, many things this tale might teach that I am not ordained to preach. <laughs> so I'm going to leave you with that, um, and I want to sort of, sort of uh, entertain any any questions or thoughts or reservations you might have about all of this. Um, I hope it's not entirely new. One of my problems is getting outside of my own mental culture, uh, realizing that some things I take for granted aren't always new to other people, um, and so, um, uh, or you know what I mean. So, uh, so I think we have that problem even interacting as individuals, right? This sort of cultural uh, uh, centeredness. 
Um, That's my question right there. Yeah. <laughs> that was it? No, it, ca it came from uh, your experiences. What, do you, what is this word, Corin? Corin. Okay, Corinne. go see the movie All Saints. I don't know if it's still in theaters. It was last week. All right, it's actually about Smyrna, Tennessee, and the Anglican Church there, not the Baptist Church, but the Anglican Church um, well, and a cultural encounter. Yeah, so the Karen are a, uh, an ethnic minority, we might say, for lack of a better term, in, uh, in, in Myanmar. And, and they live in Thailand. K-A-R-E-N, Karen. Like the girl's name. Yeah, exactly. All Saints. Yeah. Uh, church is still there. They still have a farm out on the baseball fields in the backyard that the people grow food in. And uh, I met m met yesterday one of the guys who sort of helped uh, organize the shooting for the, the movie. I actually went to a Corinne Year Festival there one time. So we, we can talk about this some other day, I think. But um, that's, uh, that's good. Any, any other thoughts or concerns or uh, outraged objections to all this? Yes. Your wife's always agreeing, right? Yeah, she would. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Go ahead. Mm. These Karen who are coming here as refugees now, they revitalized that particular church. The movie is beautiful in that sense that they came in and they saw they needed to eat. The church had property. They said, can we grow our food here? And in so doing and working together in community, in culture, in mm. agriculture, they actually revitalized the church and in a way became missionaries back to the culture that they first missionaries. It's just a, I think it's a really neat story, but that's, that's a story told by many Korean communities and other Absolutely. Yeah, there's a big story of kind of revitalization of these. Uh, they're refugees, but they're acting as missionaries, right? Even in our churches, it's quite quite amazing. Yes? Well, you mentioned uh, in sort of in passing the, the ways in which the missionary movement problematized mm -hmm. certain views of culture and what missionary mm -hmm. culture looks like. And I don't think you're kind of expanding on that. Yeah. Can you give a sense of what, what you're... What you're I have, I have well, I mean, it's 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 part and parcel of the entire thing, right? I mean, you said you're, you know, I think it was great what you said about uh, the, well, you said it better than I can, uh, the missional movement of right. not just the church, but it's you know God's nature in humanity is 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 reaching out, right, and crossing cultures, you know, getting getting to the earth. If you read the history of, you know, if you read the the book of Acts for crying out loud. Right. What's the first thing that happens uh, after the uh, you know, they start speaking in different languages? All these people are there uh, in the room as the Holy Spirit descends. And then what happens? Right. They go to the heretics. Right. They go to the Samaritans, preach to them because the Jews are stoning them. Right. And then what do they do? They bump into uh, a guy uh, from Ethiopia right, on the road. Right. Who's struggling with the uh, the book of Isaiah. And uh, Philip says, oh, yeah, this is what that means. Baptized the first baptized Christian. Right of the Christian church that we have a record of in the Bible is a black African, okay? And then that's all before Paul gets going, right, on his missionary journeys, which is the rest of the New Testament, right? So um, uh, until we get to Revelation, everybody comes together in heaven. So where do we fit into all this, right? Uh, I don't think everybody has to go, you know, to another country, right, to another quote-unquote cultural context, but... By golly, the world we live in uh, is not like that anymore, I think, you know, where we have these cultural silos. I mean, and to some extent, they persist, but in many cases, uh, 
we are uh, we're not post-cultural, right? We talk about postmodern, we talk about multicultural, we talk, toss around all these terms, but um, it's changing, right? Something's happening, right? Something's happening, uh, and it always happens within the history of the church, right? It happened um, during uh, you know the time when Christians were persecuted in the patristic era, right? That's interesting. This is one I found about that, right? Um, one of these great early descriptions of, of Christians from not necessarily outside the tradition, but this one may have been by a Christian himself, but by a, a description to non-Christians about what Christians are in the second century. The epistle to, to Diogenetus. Are you familiar with that? We don't really know who that was or who wrote it. But Christians, he says, are not distinguished from the rest of humanity, either in location or in speech or in customs. They live in the cities of the Greeks and the barbarians, or as the lot of each is cast, and follow the native customs and dress and food and all other arrangements of life. Yet the custom of their citizenship contradicts expectation. Their existence is on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. So there's a way in which, um, as members of the body of Christ, uh, we are called to live in our host culture, right? To be in the world, but not of it. And this, uh, Paul talks about citizenship in heaven as well, right? In Philippians. So this is, um, that's, that's one aspect of this. And the other aspect is to realize that there are Christians in other cultures, right? And especially in the, in the sort of model of, uh, missions, I think, that we're, we're moving into today worldwide, uh, it's less a sense of evangelizing uh, someone who is outside, uh, who is of another culture, um, and it's more of finding that God is moving, right? Uh, and the gospel is going forth in different ways. How do we make sense of that connection? If I'm thinking about uh, some of our partners with uh, um, global teams, right? That's the approach that they're taking, right? Uh, if you are a Muslim and you believe in Jesus, are you a Christian? There's a lot of baggage with that label, right? What does that mean? So there are uh, there are lots of you know interesting new I think uh, uh, aspects of this that are opening up. So we, we are not either in one culture uh, uh, anymore, right, uh, or not. Just la- this week I was with a group of international students and, and, and leaders from Southeast Asia. And uh, we, we came to see Matt at the museum. Uh, before that, we were at the uh, 16th uh, Street Baptist Church. And so it was really interesting sitting with a group of, um, uh, you know, Muslim and Buddhist and mostly atheist, right, Asians, uh, hijab-wearing Muslims. And uh, the man who's leading the tour is talking about, you know, salvation comes through, through Jesus, and he was preaching to us. Uh, it's really interesting. So when we think about where we sit with relation to the world in time and space, it's there, right? Uh, people are, are coming and going, right? Uh, Birmingham is in a, is a particular place in that, right? We have a particular, uh, we're on the map for the discussion about human rights and race and all of this other stuff. What does it mean to be Christians in this cultural environment in this time and place in history. I think that's something that would be interesting for us to think about. I'm probably going over time. Yeah. Um, just as a way to close, um, can you say thank you to
You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.